Hello and welcome back to Roland Garros for the ATP podcast at the end of an exhilarating first week of action here in the French capital. I'm Chris Bowers and I'm sitting under the south stand of the Philippe Chatrier court. There's a few matches going on in the distance. You might be able to hear the hum of some machinery that's all part of the workings of one of the big stadiums, one of the great stadiums in world sport. And I'm delighted to be joined on this week's ATP podcast by the former world number 21, Gilles Muller. Your thoughts on the first week, Jill? Well, it's been an exciting week. We've seen some uh, very good matches, some big upsets. We've seen uh, Alcaraz, one of the favourites, almost uh, falling out in the first round. And uh, it's very uh, down match points also, so it's been very exciting so far. You played this tournament several times. You played the other three majors. What were the things about Roland Garros that makes it the challenge that it is? The clay. <laughs> Uh, for me, it was actually very tough to play. I mean, uh, obviously, my game was uh, was uh, I felt comfortable on, on fast courts and grass courts and hard courts, but here on clay, it was it was very hard for me to play serve and volley. I mean, even though in Roland Garros it's always a bit quicker than most of the clay court tournaments, it's still too slow for me. And um, so that was yeah, physically very hard and mentally very hard. And uh, you can just see also when you when you see the matches how how intense they are and, and how physically demanding they are. It's, yeah, it's, it's the toughest tournament in the, of, of the year. You grew up on clay, though, didn't you? I mean, in Luxembourg, you play most of your outdoor tennis is on clay. That's true. Yeah, I grew up on clay, but uh, I think uh, when I started coming to the tour, I developed my game, and uh, obviously then you start uh, uh, take, taking your advantages. And, 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 yeah, I mean, my advantage won fast courts. I had a good first serve, uh, lefty with a lot of spin, with a lot of slice, uh, came in a lot, and uh, obviously that's something on the clay. It's not working too well. That's the voice of Gilles Muller. More from him to come throughout the show. And we'll also hear from Carlos Alcaraz, Juan Carlos Ferrero and Felix Auger-Lecim. Plus, Iga Svantec and Seb Corded go head-to-head to find out who knows more about Rafael Nadal. But first, in a week filled with drama and sensational tennis, one of the major stories that's risen above all the noise was the emotional farewell of one of the game's greats, France's long-time talisman, Joe Wilfried Songa. As the tears were being wiped and the many hugs given, we spoke to the man himself, as well as his close friend and fellow Frenchman, Gael Monfils. But first of all, world number one, Novak Djokovic. That is a piece of Songa magic. And now Songa goes to the off-forehand of Berrettini. Big again, Songa! Second serve. He's run round Songa. He's going for it. He gets it! A roar to the crowd from Joe Wilfred Songa. Dancing towards the net. Songa passes him onto the line. Double-handed backhand. Classic Joe Wilfred Songa. Joe is one of the most charismatic tennis players ever to play the game. I'm, I was very happy to share the court with him uh, many times and we get along very well. He's a really nice guy and uh, he brought he brought a lot of, um, I think, positive attention and popularity to our sport because of not just his dynamic game style, but also, you know, his charisma, um, his personality. Him and Gael Monfils, obviously, uh, guys that grew up together, and just they brought some. They always bring so much energy to the court. So Joe was all about that, and you could feel that when you're playing against him or watching him play. So it's a big loss for for professional men's tennis to have him retire. But um, you know, I wish him all the best. He, he he definitely should be happy about his his career and his achievements, and he's made his mark and legacy in our sport. Monfils is covering a lot of yards here to stay in the point. Goes up the line! Magnifique! 
he's a, a pure attack player. You yep. know, he was uh, for me the definition of smooth and 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 be super aggressive. You know, it's like for me his game was uh, yeah like a big shot, like really big shot, spectacular shot because it's coming a lot to the net. Used to hit this big forehand and come to the net. Has some crazy smashes, dives uh, quite a lot on the. On, on grass and even you know, no, on hard, and uh, you know he has uh, he had this uh, this flair as well, like 100% his flair, a lot of 100 backhand passing shots, uh, and uh, the passion of the game. This is this is for me uh, the most important thing that uh, you know uh, Joe was uh, a big 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 uh, you know uh, passionist of the, the tennis game. Gael Monfils said that I was a role model, and. For me, it was it was important to to be this role model uh, I wanted to be. Um, today, I have some players like Felix Ojaliasim. Uh, I inspire those guys. I inspire guys like Nick Kyrgios. They are completely different. It means I had uh, a little bit of them, you know, in, in me, and it's just an honor, you know, and. Uh, most of the player, uh, the young player, I played them, and uh, I was really proud because after the match uh, they came to me and and uh, they told me we we woke up really early to see you play uh, there or there, and yeah, it's uh, it's I'm just proud of that and proud of this and and uh, and uh, and that's it and that's it and this is my legacy and also I didn't do crazy things uh, to be a character on the tour and uh, for me it's also something uh, I'm proud of. As a good friend of Joe Wilfried Tsonga, how did you feel that the French Tennis Federation handled his final match? Yeah, it was very emotional. I, I didn't get to do his match but I, I watched it on TV and uh, I was actually happy not to be commentating because I think it would have been very hard to talk. I was very yeah, very sad and and, uh, and very happy at the, at the same time for him. I mean, a new chapter is starting now for him, and uh, he was a very good guy. I, I'm, we, we played juniors together already, so I know him for a very long time. And uh, I think when you look at his career, obviously, I mean, he's reached, he's done so many good things. Uh, he's been in in finals of Grand Slam, in, in semi-finals, and top ten in the world. Uh, won a Davis Cup. He's won so many things. But I, you cannot stop believing, uh, thinking also that he could have done so much better if he didn't have all those injuries. I mean, he had. Uh, Many times, uh, yeah, just got stopped because uh, of his bad back, because of knee problems. And uh, but overall, I think Cedric Greater has done so much for French tennis. He's done so much for tennis in general. Um, it was just always a pleasure to see him play because you could just feel he was enjoying himself on the court and was giving so much back to the fans. And and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be different without Joe on the tour. But um, yeah, I'm happy for him. Also, he has two kids now, so he gets to enjoy the family a lot, and that's something he he definitely deserves. Kaspar Ruud said of Songa at the ceremony, or just before the ceremony, he's been an honest example of what tennis players should be and how they should behave. Do you think that's as much his legacy as the, uh, as the bouncing up and down on the court or the, the Muhammad Ali look-alike? I mean, there's, there's just so much about Joe. I mean, um, the way he looked on the court, as I said already, you could just feel, and, and I spoke to many people, uh, many, many fans that came out to watch him, they just came to to see a guy actually enjoying what he was doing. I mean, when he, when he pl was playing tennis, he did it with so much passion, with so much joy, and it was just a pleasure to, to see him play. And then also his, 
he stayed very humble. I mean, he always stayed uh, the little guy from from France. That he never, yeah, he never became the different person, even though we, we had all this success. And and that's what's what's to me, it's standing out. It's interesting. Last week on the ATP podcast, we had Rafael Nadal talking about Alcaraz, saying, you know, he's not quite normal, just the way Roger wasn't normal and Novak isn't normal and, and maybe I'm not normal myself. Do you think that Songa was almost too nice, too normal to be the same level of champion as some of the greats? Maybe. You could be right. I mean, he, he actually was maybe sometimes too nice. Uh, he didn't have that, uh, let's say, that last percent of the killer instinct on, on, on the tennis court, but... Uh, Still, I think he, as I said already, he has a great career and, and um, if he didn't have all those injuries, I think he could have done much better. Those are the views of the former player Gilles Muller. And to get more context on what Songa's exit means for French tennis, earlier in the week I spoke with one of the leading French tennis journalists, Julien Reboulet of L'Equipe. We can say that for the three last years it was already difficult for him and, well, uh, it's like his best level was far away from now for a long time but he had to say goodbye in a good way and and he did and it was it was a lot of emotion because of that because he he was able to to give the french public a last big emotion uh, playing so well uh, against the top 10 it was quite incredible to see him play at that level for his very last match so there was yeah something like wow he still had this in his game uh, and uh, well, it was it was sad, but I think he 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 feel released also now. We've known Joe as a great character, as a charismatic player who played at the time of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Vavrinka. We know his impact around the world. Has he encouraged young French boys and French girls to pick up a racket in terms of? helping the future of French tennis? Or do you think that would have happened anyway because of the transnational appeal of the likes of Federer, Nadal and Djokovic? In France, you know, the, the, the biggest legacy uh, in modern tennis, I think, will be for still a long time Yannick Noah because he, he, changed, he changed many things in the way uh, French people uh, looked at tennis as a, as a real profession. He was, well... He was incredible, and with him, uh, we, we had a, very, a real boom of tennis in France. But uh, then, uh, Joe, f- since Yannick, uh, I think he, he's been, uh, he, he had the most strong leadership because he shows to everybody that he's been able to build something, to have a real complete staff, uh, to put everything together to be able to, well, to, to give 100% about what he had inside. Uh, you know that very young, he, he had injuries, very serious injuries, uh, discal hernia. Uh, and some doctors told him that he was only 17 and, and they told him, well, don't, don't hope to, to do a career. You, you will not be able, your, your back won't be able to, to stand this. So for this, all he managed is incredible. And the way he, he used he, his potential uh, was great because... We can't say he had a great backhand. Everybody knows that. But uh, at the same time as Federer and Nadal at the beginning, and then Djokovic, Murray, and everybody, he he had an incredible level. Without them, of course, we all think he would have won a Grand Slam or two or three. But for your question, yes, I think I remember Lukapui at the beginning. He 
he said that Joe was an example. And he said also that the French musketeers, you know, the four of them with Gasquet, Monfils and Simon also, it was a big help for uh, for them, young young players, because they could ask them how to handle the new things that coming f- to us, the media things, the sponsor things, the, the crowd things. And um, having these players, w- he said, Luca was very, yes, helpful for, hi- for him because he he managed to use this as um, like they were friends and they, they, they were able to make him um, earn time on his own development. That's Julien Rebollet from the French sports daily L'Equipe and you can hear an extended version of that conversation which also discusses the history of French tennis and the outlook for the future this coming Wednesday on the ATP podcast channel. Gilles Muller, Gilles Simon also retired from Roland Garros this week. He's playing out the rest of the season. He's not ending his career here, but it's his last Roland Garros and they had a little ceremony for him as well. Two of the four Musketeers ending, Gasquet's 35, Monfils is 35. To what extent do you think Simon's retirement belongs in the same category as Tsonga's? Well, I think maybe he's not as popular as, as, as Tsonga, Gilles Simon, but still, I mean, with the way he was playing, he, let's, let's say he didn't play as spectacular as Tsonga did but but still I mean everything he, he's done it's, it's quite amazing I mean also he was in the top 10 and uh, played a couple of quarterfinals in Grand Slams and, and uh, again won the Davis Cup for France and did so much for the French tennis and uh, same thing I know him also quite well uh, he's, he's one year younger than me we played juniors together already and, and uh, so again I mean it's sad to see them go but on the other hand it's it's just the normal way it goes I mean we're all getting older and it gets to a point where, where they will stop because I think Simon also struggled a lot with his body in the last couple of years so I think I think he deserves also just to to enjoy life now and, and, and spend some time with his kids and, and, and with his with his wife with his family and uh, yeah again it's sad to see him go but I guess it's just the normal way You've played against all four of, uh, Songa Simon Monfils and Gasquet what are the main differences that you saw on the other side of the net that we might not see watching them from the stands or on television? A lot of things that, that are different and a lot of things that, that I saw on the court. I think, well, let's start with Gasquet, for example. I mean, with him, it was the, at a young age already. People were expecting so much from him and, and all the pressure he had through all this year. So I have the utmost respect for him for, for what he did um, because... Sometimes in France, people don't realize. I mean, obviously, he didn't win a Grand Slam and, and didn't become number one in the world. But still, with those kind of expectations, I think he was nine years old when he was at the cover of, of French tennis magazine saying that he was going to be the new number one. So with all that, with that weight on his shoulders, he still was able to have a, a great career. And, and obviously, what stands out is, is his one-handed backhand. I mean, it's, for, for me, one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful, one-handed backhand on the tour. And, um, well, with Gilles Simon, it's actually quite funny because uh, we played uh, club matches together when we started our careers and I think he was ranked around 130 I was ranked maybe just below 100 and uh, we were having a few beers after a match and uh, yeah, he just asked me so what, what do you think where do you think I can go where do you, what do you think my best ranking is going to be at the end of my career and I told him and in a way I, I wanted to be funny but in a way to be honest I never thought he was going to be able to, to have that career that he had I mean because as I said already he didn't look that spectacular on the court he didn't have like a a big weapon where you said, "Okay, he's gonna, he's gonna hit aces there, or he's gonna hit winners there." And uh, so I looked at him and I said, just to make fun of him, also, I think the best ranking you're gonna have is 110. <laughs> and actually, two years later, 
he made the semi-finals at the, the ATP finals at the end of the year and uh, yeah I look I look quite stupid there and uh, every time he sees me he says, you see uh, you were not so right and uh, so that that's what what he stayed also very humble very t- nice and easy guy and and uh, just had that that thing about him they call him in France they call him the professor because he was sure he had the right tactic he actually had a book where he took some notes after each match how he played against that player so for him tennis was more like uh, like mathematics he and and, and that, that that was quite funny for him obviously at Roland Garros the crowd gets behind the French players but there was one player this week Alex Diminor who after losing in five sets to Hugo Gaston said it crossed a line do you think there is a line that can be crossed or do you think that we need to encourage as much atmosphere as possible in order to make tennis as attractive as possible in a very competitive global economic sporting marketplace it's, it's a tough question to answer because I, I think there's a a thin line in between there. I think on, on one hand, um, you prefer to play in, in, in a full stadium, even if the crowd is against you, than playing maybe on an outside court where there's nobody watching. So I think to have that kind of atmosphere, I, I, I did uh, Holger Rune's match against Ugo Gasto and he said the same thing. It was tough at moments, but on the other hand, you prefer to play in, kind, in, in, this, in those kind of atmospheres and in those kind of stadiums. So as long as, as, as I mean, if, if they respect the opponent, I think it's okay I mean I also remember I had a very tough match uh, in, in Australia in Melbourne against John Millman and uh, I also felt during the match obviously when there's tension and everything that sometimes they went too far but then after the match when, when I calmed down I, I told myself look it's, I mean what this is probably one of the best atmospheres I've ever played in even if it was against me so um, I, I think it got, yeah there has to be respect but on the other hand sometimes you have to deal with it when the crowd is against you but can you appreciate it if they're against you I think when you're on the court at that moment, it, no, you cannot appreciate it. But I think afterwards, when you realize that maybe you could have also played on court number 17 and, and no people watching at all, or when you played challengers and there was just your coach in the stands, I think then you can appreciate it. Yeah, is that not easier to say now that you've finished playing and you look, you're working for the media and you, you know, we live off good atmospheres? It's wonderful to see, but when you're actually in there, is it fair? I suppose that's what I'm getting at. I think there's many things sometimes that are unfair. Maybe there's also sometimes a, a wrong decision from the umpire, even though he doesn't do it on purpose, but it can cost you a match as well and it's not fair. But I think those are things you just have to deal with. I mean, tennis is a lot about adapting. Uh, you're adapting on, on, on different surfaces, you're adapting to your opponent, you're adapting on, on uh, the weather or whatever, and, and I think you have to adapt also with the crowds. But I, I agree with you. It is easier to say it now, but, but we are on the court, it's, it's quite tough, but I really think that that's how it is. It's a topic that will come and go, uh, wax and wane. Another topic that comes and goes is whether to keep best of five sets for the men. And it's interesting to look back on week one. Sasha Sverev would have gone out in the second round against Sebastian Baez if it had been best of three. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz would have gone out in the second round against Albert Ramos Vignolas because he was two sets to one down. Stefano Tsitsipas was two sets to love down against Lorenzo Mazzetti in his first round. Does that make the case more for best of five or does that actually show that best of five is the real test because it's more of a test of endurance than of just coming out and playing a good couple of sets of tennis? In my opinion, I mean, there's no doubt about it that in the Grand Slams you have to keep best of five. I think it's just what, what stands out. I mean, the Grand Slams are the, the biggest tournaments of the year, the toughest tournaments of the year, and, and you shouldn't change it. I think everyone... At least in the locker room, when, I, when we spoke, I mean, this topic came up many times when I, still, when, I, when I was still playing, and everyone had the same opinion. They just want to keep the five sets. It's just what stands out. It's, it's 
the biggest tournaments of the year and and yeah I just think it's it's amazing to see when a when a top player is, is down two sets and then uh, see him try to fight and, and come back I remember when I played I had a couple of matches where I was two sets to love down and still won it and I think also the confidence you gain from that and also the the physical aspect you, you it's just it's just great. I mean, the atmosphere is also the stands. So, so I think you, sh- you shouldn't cancel the, the five, best of five. Definitely not. It's interesting that Alcaraz played over four and a half hours in his second round match against Ramos Vignolas. I wondered whether he might be tired for his match against Sevi Corda in the third round. He came out two days later looking as fresh as anything. I mean, that suggests that even, even 19-year-olds, albeit special 19-year-olds, which he clearly is, can handle best of five. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think nowadays... Uh, the, the, the good the top players they all have great teams around them so they have their physical twin they have the physios they have they have everything so recovery is a big issue and, and, and they all do that perfectly I mean I can see uh, the, um, when I was still playing also the diet of many players uh, how hard they worked and uh, yeah it's those moments they work for and then obviously when you have a five set match it pays off we're mentioning Carlos Alcaraz there. It's amazing how many roads lead to the 19-year-old Spaniard at the moment. So let's get a little bit more on the young man from Murcia. ATP Uncovered spent some time with Alcaraz, his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero and his agent Albert Molina. The climb he's had has just been quite staggering. Just learning so rapidly. That's so good. It's the youngest top 50 player since Rafa Nadal in 2004. I want to be Carlos Alcaraz and all the, the crowd, all the people to know that they are thinking about Carlos Alcaraz. I trust myself, I trust on my game, I'm working hard to be able to compete against that players. I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm a professional tennis player, but feeling 18 years old, I have to do things that I'm 18 years old. We try to give him all the facilities to have a normal life in a different life that he's living. The expectation was through the roof and he delivered. He knows that he has to go, you know, his game, his path, his tournaments, and if he wins, he wins. If not, it's life. The 18-year-old becomes the youngest champion at ATP 500. The first ever Masters 1000 final for the sensational Spaniards. Who was your biggest influence, or who was the reason you started playing tennis? Uh, my father, my father was a tennis player. When did you really find that you had something special? When I was 13 or 14 years old, when I started to uh, travel out of Spain, so I in this age. I met him first time when he had uh, 12 years old, and in this age, he's uh, a boy. He had talent and had the capacity to make different situations, different games that the other players in his age is impossible to do. We are in the academy, in Juan Carlos Ferrero Academy. Well, uh, I, I live here, I'm training here since two years ago. My home is uh, one hour by car. It's not too far, but living here, you, you are thinking tennis 24 hours and I mean, living in a tennis academy, you know, it's perfect to, to become a good tennis player. When Carlos had 15 years old, I personally thought that Carlos needs a top coach. My thoughts was that Carlos needs some coach that has to teach him the habits like sacrifice and to be 
focus always, every time, in, in every point, and all these things that he has to improve. And in my thoughts was that the best coach in this uh, category was Juan Carlos Ferrero. I came here to the academy to train a, a little bit with uh, some players and I remember that uh, Juan Carlos was uh, on the court. And uh, he told me to, to train once and uh, I was like, uh, oh my God, I'm going to train with, with Juan Carlos. <laughs> Juan Carlos was uh, number one of the world. He, he's a champion of Grand Slam, Roland Garros. He won the first Davis Cup in Spain. I mean, he, he has a, a lot of tournaments, uh, Master 1000, 16 ATP tournaments, so he, he has a, a good career. Uh, Albert Molina told me that uh, Juan Carlos is gonna work with, with me, uh, be my coach, and it was special for me, you know. A year before I met Juan Carlos, I told my father and my mom that the, imagine that the Juan Carlos is in my box when I'm playing Roland Garros, so uh, it's crazy, you know. A 15 years old guy is with Juan Carlos Ferrer. It's very different to see someone that is very dynamic on the court. He was uh, a little bit inconsistent, but his quality on the court was impressive. Uh, that's what I saw. It was, you know, uh, forehand, backhand already was good, and uh, maybe not the serve. He was not as good as he is now physically, but of course you could see someone different than the others. It's difficult to say like he's like a son, because he has his family and father and everything, but of course he's a very important person in, in my life. That's, that's for sure. Everything that the I, I has done is uh, thanks to him. He always say that uh, he, he has four kids. I'm uh, part of, of them. <laughs> the experience that uh, he's having to play against players that uh, he's been watching on TV the last couple of years, of course, it's not easy. But now I think he's ready. But of course, the consistency of doing that, we have to work about it. Wow. <laughs> I, I thought that I'm working hard and I, I'm working a, a lot outside of the reality, you know, <laughs> the real life. When I came here, it's a totally different world. And we'll have part two of this exclusive feature with Carlos Alcaraz and his team next week. I remember the first day when I'm living here in the academy, it was so tough. When he got back the good results in Use Open, all the people show more interest in Carlos. Some players that, that they give uh, his best at practice and not at the competitions. And uh, he means the opposite. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. The former Wimbledon and US Open quarterfinalist Jill Muller is still with me and shortly we'll be talking about the fortunes of Novak Djokovic, Daniel Medvedev, Rafael Nadal and others still in the mix. And talking of the 13-time Roland Garros champion, ATP Uncovered sat down in two different locations with two of the brightest stars of the men's and women's tours to ask them a series of questions about the great Spaniard. So let's see how a player on the hottest of winning streaks, the WTA star Iga Swiatek, got on when she took on a man who counted Nadal as his idol growing up, even named his cat after him, the young American Sebastian Corda. So how is your Rafa knowledge? I mean, I don't know a lot of knowledge at all. 
So you're going to be going up against Sebastian Corda for this. Ooh. Is he is he really like a super fan? I consider myself okay. Okay, let's go. When is Rafa's birthday? Oh god. I don't think does does I mean does he have a birthday on Ron Garros? Oh actually. It's during a tournament, right? June? Even June. Third? June third? Correct. One for one so there far. We go. <laughs> I'm already sweating. <laughs> what town was Rafa born in? Uh in Mallorca. Is it Mallorca? It is Mallorca. What is Rafa's full name? These are really hard. Uh, it's Rafael Nadal Ferreira. 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 He doesn't really go by that one right now. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't hear that too often. You never heard the Pereira? No. You know, I don't think Iga got his last name and... Right? So... <laughs> okay, let's go. How old was Rafa when he started playing tennis? Two, three, or four? Four. Correct. You said that very confidently. Three? Not three. Four? Four. Okay. Which football team does Rafa support? Um, Ooh. Is it Madrid? Real Madrid, I would say. Correct. Rafa has another uncle named Miguel that played football. What team did he play for? Oh. I can give you a multiple choice if you want it. Yes, please. That was quick. Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona. Atletico. Final answer? Yes. Barcelona. Right, and he's a real... Okay, now I remember the story, okay. Do you know what Barcelona. <laughs> I knew that. You gotta let me finish the question first. <laughs> what year did Rafa turn pro? 01? 2001. Correct. Nice one. I didn't need multiple choices. No multiple choice needed. Where did Rafa win his first ATP title? Oh, uh, Poland, no? I think actually in Sobot in Poland. Nicely yeah. done. Oh, I'm getting better at it. You're getting better. Where did Rafa play against Federer for the first time? Was it here in Miami, no? Miami. Correct. You know who won that match? I think Fed, no? Rafa won it, really. Rafa won the first one. Rafa. Rafa? Well, a quite astonishing win. I don't know that. I mean, I could do better, honestly. <laughs> Help. Who did Rafa defeat for his first top five victory? Ferrero, Moya, or Nalbandian? Um... Moya. Was it uh, his coach, Moya? Correct. But I was guessing, I didn't know at all, so. How many years has Rafa finished as world number one? Five. You were on it with that one, no hesitation. <laughs> Eight? Final answer? I'll pretend I didn't see the number that you showed me, because I want to be fair, but I know this is wrong already, so. Five. Five, yeah. That was hard. How do you think Sebastian's gonna do? Um, I think better, honestly. <laughs> I have to say that you did win this I did win. <laughs> That's good. I consider myself a Rafa fan, so. Please, don't judge. If you would ask like the same question about Sandra Bullock or Taylor Swift, I would answer much better. The voice of Iga Shiontek, the runaway women's number one and favorite for this Roland Garros women's singles title. What do you make, Gilles, of Iga Shiontek and the run she's put together? 30, 31 successive wins really filled Ash Barty's shoes. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I think she's great for women's tennis. Uh, 
the way she's playing on the court, the way she behaves herself, uh, and it's it's kind of funny also. I mean, when when she's talking, you feel like she's this li little sweet girl, but then on the court, she she turns out to be that that monster in a, in a positive way. That it's just yeah, just going through matches, just winning them easily, and and very focused, very determined. And uh, yeah, I think she's going to be a big star and, and a big thing for for women's tennis in the future. I was fascinated to see how Seb Korda went up against Alcaraz in the third round. I thought maybe because they were juniors together there wouldn't be the fear factor that there is with some of maybe the older players when they face Alcaraz but by the time Alcaraz had won two tight sets with some fantastic tennis I got the sense that Korda although he's a couple of years older than Alcaraz still has a lot of ground to make up uh, yes and no I, I think he proved already that he can beat Alcaraz he beat him in, in Monte Carlo on, on the clay and um, yeah I mean it's tough I, like we said I mean when you're down against against a player like Alcaraz, two sets to love, it's it's mentally very tough. And and this is what when we go back to talking about the five set matches, it's what's what's actually beautiful about it. So he has to still still to learn a lot. And and uh, but on the other hand, I, I don't think he's that far away from him because I, I watched his match also against Gasquet, and I thought he was very impressive on, on handling the situations on the big courts already. And so I, I'm definitely looking forward to those uh, meetings in the future of those two players. Well, one of the matches we've got to look forward to this coming week is Rafael Nadal playing Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals on Tuesday. If Nadal does go on to win here, he'll be two Grand Slam titles ahead of both Djokovic and Federer, with the only big title to evade him so far being the NITO ATP finals. If we're going to base being the greatest male player on titles, is it now a two-horse race between Djokovic and Nadal? <laughs> Tough question. Um... Yeah, but uh, it looks like it. I, I think um, Federer is not going to play any Grand Slams this year. Um, I think we'll only will see when he comes back at the end of the year. He planned to play Basel uh, to see in what shape he is and then see if he's still able to, to play. Uh, I mean, to play Grand Slams for sure, but is he going to be able to go for, far in Grand Slams? That we don't know yet. So it looks like it's a two-horse race at the moment. And uh, I mean, this matchup in the quarterfinals now between uh, Rafa and, and Novak is... is it's like a final for me. I, I, in my opinion, it's like, yeah, everybody. I think here, the fans and the tournament also, they would love to have that final on on, on next Sunday. But uh, unfortunately, it's in the quarter final. But it's definitely going to be a huge matchup, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Daniel Medvedev has had a good week. Stefano Tsitsipas had two very difficult uh, opening matches: five sets in the first, four sets in the second, and two of the three sets he had to save set points in. Do you think that there's a golden opportunity for someone else in the bottom half of the draw? Or is it a golden opportunity for Medvedev, perhaps? I think it could be actually Medvedev. I think um, because he didn't play much on clay, uh, maybe his expectations are not that high or were not that high when he came in here. But now he's won three matches uh, and, and he's looking actually quite good on the court, very comfortable. So I think it could be because nobody was thinking about him. Maybe everybody said, OK, he came, he's coming back from injury. Maybe that's his chance, actually. Just a quick word about the former French Open runner-up and US Open champion Dominic Team. He played, he lost in his first round, he hasn't won a match since his comeback this year. He was saying nerves are toxic about his forehand after his losing run continued here. How do you try and overcome an injury like that? It's never easy and I think, if I recall correctly, I think it's his first big injury so he doesn't have much experience in that department and I think... Yeah, just needs to be patient, needs to work very hard every single day and just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of easy to say, but just be patient. I think that's the most important thing. But you can see that he's not feeling well on the court. You don't see his determination that he had before. And you can see that he's doubting a lot. And I, I think, especially a player like him, 
who always practiced very hard, who always worked very hard, who needed a lot of, who played a lot of matches also to find his rhythm. Well, you can see that he doesn't have that rhythm at the moment. So I think, yeah, it's a matter of, of time and, and he needs to work hard, keep working hard, keep believing and at one point it's going to happen for sure. You're sure it's going to happen? I'm very sure. That's great to hear. The views of Gilles Muller. Let's hear from a man who has made great strides this year. He won his first title. He lost to Rafael Nadal in the fourth round here. He's still very much a player getting to grips with clay courts, Felix Auger-Aliassime. The Canadian, who had the weird situation whereby one of his coaches, Tony Nadal, wouldn't sit with him for his fourth round match because he was up against Nadal's nephew, Rafa. But working with Tony Nadal has meant Felix is becoming more and more confident week by week. I think sometimes what's confusing for me is, you know, you get on the clay and you kind of want to change how I normally play because of the surface, where I think that, you know, with the way I was playing at the start of the year and even an indoor, I don't need to change, you know, the way I play that much because of the surface. I just need to be a bit more patient, work my point a little bit more, but, you know, it, it can be confusing for a player like me sometimes, you know, really choosing the right way to play. So you're almost going back to the way you played before? Oh yeah, in a way it's, it's sometimes, you know, everybody on clay talks about being solid, you know, not missing, being, but I'm a very aggressive player. You know, I usually stay close to, my, to the line and I try to come in, I try to put pressure on my opponent by, you know, uh, taking time off uh, of him. And, um, and it's the same thing, you know, on the clay that I need to do is just to be a little bit more patient. But, you know, sometimes you lose a few matches and then you start questioning, you know, if, are you playing the right way? Are you having the right intentions? But, uh, you know, you, and that's why it's good, I think, that you put, to play a lot of tournaments. In my case, when I'm still young and still experiencing all these things, to really find out, like, you know, what's, what's my way, you know, what's my way to play and, and stick to that. Is it hard then when you've got a coach uh, in, in Tony who comes in for a few tournaments and obviously wants to, you mm -hmm. know, give you something? Um, no, I mean, it's, there's always good to take. Um, and... It's not hard, you know, we've been working together for more than a year now. We've had, you know, good results together. So uh, I think every time, you know, he's there, I can just only learn from him. And, uh, and after, at the end, I'm the player. I need to decide within myself how I want to play. I need to have a clear idea of, of how I want to play for now, but also for my future and how I want to develop myself as a player. But having, you know, my coach Fred and, and Tony in my corner, uh, can only help in terms of you know learning, taking things from them, uh, having some guidance, and uh, and also sometimes you know questioning uh, um, or challenging, should I say, you know uh, the way I want to play. So it can only be good, and I feel like you know I'm always very open-minded uh, when Tony's around, and I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Is it hard to stay patient? Like you know, I mean, when, when you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice, really. You know, um, I would want to win every match I play, and and but then the reality is what happened. You know, since the start of the year, I won more matches than I lost, but still, I I, I lost more matches than I than I wish I did, of course. And uh, uh, you know, you just have to accept the reality. So I don't I don't see in a way where like I'm not patient or I should be more patient. It's just that. Uh, Whatever happens, you need to accept it. And uh, if a loss, ha if, you know, if you lose, then you just need to, to see how you can learn from that, see how you, what you can improve. And then if you win, it means you're doing good things, but also there's still things to improve. So it's a constant, you know, uh, progression. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's always, you know, a new start 
every week, so I just see it as opportunities, really. Felix Auger-Alessim adapting to clay. I mean, if you've played most of your tournaments as a junior on hard courts, and you've had most of your results on hard courts, how easy is it to adjust to the, the slipperiness, the fact that the ground is totally different under your feet? Well, yeah, it's, it's definitely totally different and you have to adapt in, in, in a way that um, obviously with the sliding, so you have to do a little bit of, of work physically before coming to the clay. Also, it's, it's very important that the first days you play on the clay to, to not give it 100%. In, 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 I mean, it, that maybe sounds strange, but uh, just to be careful, I mean, because, yeah, you're not used to do to those... Uh, to, to slide and, and to be on on, on, uh, on total extension with with with, uh, with, uh, with your legs and so there's a yeah a preparation you have to do before you 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 can feel 100 percent on, on clay court and, and I think well obviously uh, for example uh, uh, Aliasim, he has a, a big team around him especially Tony Nadal who knows a lot about clay court so I'm sure they, they will help him a lot to, to to get ready for the clay do people actually train certain muscles specifically for stretches that will only happen on a clay court? Yeah, I think the abductors is a big thing. The groin area is, is, is very important just to to, uh, to avoid any injuries when, when you're sliding for the first time. And then uh, I think there's this, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did a, at least, I did always a little bit of preparation. I always took, uh, after Miami, I took two weeks just to get ready for the clay and then play in Monte Carlo because I just felt like I couldn't just go from, from one tournament to another and changing surfaces just like that. So the red dirt, not to the liking of everyone, but then no two clay courts are exactly the same and things like height above sea level, cities or country, the climate, make some courts very different to others. ATP Uncovered caught up with Bruno Suarez, Stefano Tsitsipas, Dominic Team, Fabio Fanini and Yannick Sinner to find out where they feel most at home at this particular time of the season. Clay court quick fires. So clay courts. If you had a weekend off, would you explore Madrid, Rome, Monte Carlo, or Barcelona? I would say Barcelona. So I'd probably go to the beach, get some good food. You know, it's like Spanish food, and I really like Barcelona. I would go for Madrid. I feel like it's a city that's very rich and modern, and has a lot of culinary experiences and interesting history to explore. I'd explore Rome because it's probably the most historic city of those. Colsheim, for example, make some tours. So, well, that's one thing I want to do in the future. We have Emily in Paris. What would Fabio be? Fabio where? In Monte Carlo. Fabio Panini is a Masters 1000 champion. He's the first Italian to win here in Monte Carlo since 1968. Home, friends. Nice weather, nice club. Perfect. Uh, Yannick in my little hometown. In Vienna. Okay, we like that. <laughs> Dominic in Vienna. Yes. You've got a match against Rafa on clay. What's the game plan? How are you going to play him? Probably kill him. <laughs> I don't know yet because I never won one set. I'm not going to say my tactic against him. He might be watching these interviews and I don't want to give away anything. Uh, I mean, it won't make any difference, but to me, it might make a small difference. Uh, to beat Rafa on clay, you have to be ready under 10% physically, tennis, mentally. You have to run a lot. It is a day Fabio Fanini will remember for the rest of his life. He's beaten Rafa Nadal on clay in Monte Carlo. First of all, I hope that I have a really good day. <laughs> Just to be the one who is more offensive throughout the game because 
If you're the one against Rafa to, in the defense, then uh, you can go straight to shake the hands. <laughs> A first defeat of the season on the dirt for Rafael Nadal. What's the best clay court to play on? <laughs> Let me think. Um, only one. I mean, it's tough to say. Madrid, definitely of the altitude and there's not much clay on the court so somehow like a hard court with some clay on. I like uh, in Rome the Pietrangeli. When the sun is going down you have a very, very nice background. One of the most beautiful tennis courts ever. The Philippe Chatria at the French Open would be the best clay court that I can imagine. Not too fast, not too slow, perfect speed uh, for a clay court match. Nadal, Borg, or Vilas? You can play doubles with one of them and you're gonna play against the other two. I'll go with Bjorn Borg. I just love the Swede. People have been comparing me a little bit to him, saying that we have the same kind of style and also hair. Temperament, are you an ice man? Temperament, maybe I'm, I'm off by a little. I would take Borg as my doubles partner just to get the chance to spend more time with him, I might let him down a little bit on clay. <laughs> I'll play with Rafa against Borg and Vilas. Rafa and I, I know him pretty well. I've played great matches against him, so it would be nice to play doubles with him. I choose Rafa because I know him. He's one of the greatest of all time. So yeah, me and doubles, I'm not so good. So uh, if we lose, it's my fault, but <laughs> I will, I will choose Rafa. Yeah, physically, I think we are stronger, so hope that is work. <laughs> Favorite European cuisine? Too easy. Italian. Italian food is the best food, <laughs> so I choose Italian. Definitely Italian and Rome as well. We have everything, pasta, uh, meat, fish, uh, pizza, everything that you need. And I know Italy, Rome's got some great food, pasta, caprese, but I would say Spanish food. Celebration on clay, falling to the court, or stay, do you stay standing up? My, I won my first title on clay and also the first title in Austria on clay, and both times I fell on the back. I was really sweaty, it was not ni that nice to get clean afterwards. So, if the emotions don't overcome me from now on, I'll keep standing and just put my hands in the air. Fall down, celebrate, just become one with clay. Why not? At the end of the match, you can fall down and, and be not so clean. Be just a little bit with clay everywhere. It's good for, for the pictures, maybe. <laughs> You're going to Fashion Week and you have a plus one. Which players coming with you to Fashion Week? Oi, that's a tough one. Who has good fashion? Fashion Week, probably I will bring Grigor because he love, uh, he have, he love uh, fashion, he loves to, to dress well, so probably I go with him. Is Grigor going to outdress you though? Well, I think he loves to dress well, so I think he can be a good partner. I'm taking Matteo Berrettini with me. He's stylish. He might address me, but uh, I'm going to be happy for him. I would take Jamie Murray. Uh, he's got a lot to learn on the fashion-wise, so it would be a good experience for him to learn something about fashion. So it's more of a teaching lesson for Jamie. Yeah, so I hope he learns something new on his fashion. The voices there are Bruno Suarez, Stefano Tsitsipas, Dominic Team, Fabio Fanini and Yannick Zinner with some very interesting answers. Gilles Muller is still with me. What's your favourite clay court? Ooh, uh, my favourite clay court, well, 
it's obviously a place where I always had uh, some success is Estoril. <laughs> I always did well. I played my my only final on the ATP tour there, and uh, I always liked it there. I mean, it was kind of kind of quick courts, a uh, little windy always, but um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you always liked the places where you had uh, where you had good wins. If you had a weekend off, would you explore Madrid, Rome, Monte Carlo, or Barcelona? Ooh, that's a tough one as well. I think I would say Rome because uh, with all the different places there are to visit uh, I just uh, when I played the tournament I didn't have much time to do it I did a little bit of it but I would really take the time and, 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 and go and have a, a couple of days there to visit everything You once beat Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon if you played him on clay what would the game plan be? Oh I actually did play him on, on, on clay and uh, the game plan uh, got really let's put it that way got really destroyed very quickly <laughs> um, obviously my game plan would be to just yeah, try and play aggressive, try to avoid the long rallies. But uh, I tried it and it didn't work out very well. <laughs> if there was Nadal, Borg, Vilas and you, you can play doubles with one of them against the other two. Who would you choose to play doubles with? Wow. I actually would take uh, Vilas. I think it's quite interesting. Uh, it would be quite interesting to see... Uh, to, to learn from from uh, from a player like him, I mean, I never got to, to to meet him, never got to to really watch him play just on TV a little bit. But uh, yeah, I actually love to to play with him. What is your favorite European cuisine? Italian, yeah, Italian because well, I have to kind of have to say because my wife is Italian and uh, <laughs> but no, I do really I really do like it. Um, and what's your favorite Italian dish? It's a tough tough thing between pizza and pasta, but uh, I would take a, a nice pizza in Rome. That would be great. When players win on clay, some just acknowledge the crowd, some fall onto the court and get very dirty. <laughs> What's your optimum celebration? I wouldn't fall down because uh, yeah, I, I, I never liked it when, uh, when I played on clay and then my socks were, they, they became all red. And, uh, yeah, I never liked it, so I would just uh, salute the, the crowd. And if you were going to Fashion Week and you could take a guest from the tennis tour with you, which player would come with you? Oh, wow. Well, they all dressed up very nicely. I don't know... Uh... I would take Tsonga. He's a good friend of mine and just take him and... Uh, <laughs> Has he got a good sense of style? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all have a good one, yeah, yeah. But as, yeah, as I know him pretty well and I think we would enjoy ourselves there. Well, Joe Wilfried Tsonga has plenty of time for style now that he's finished playing tennis. That's it for this week. I'm Chris Bowers and my thanks to Gilles Muller. I'll be back with another guest next week to look back on all things Roland Garros. And in the meantime, remember to head to the ATP podcast channel on Wednesday for the full-length version of my exclusive conversation with L'Equipe journalist Julien Reboulet as we deconstruct all things French tennis. You can get that channel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And finally, please also check out the new ATP WTA Live app. That's the best place to go for the rankings, scores, latest news and much more. Thanks for listening from the ATP podcast from Paris. Bye-bye. 